0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program, which is almost our 1,000th show. Today marks show number 999. I hope to have some special shows here and the following two programs. In our second segment today, we'll be joined by Stephen J. Harper, who is always a pleasure to speak with. We'll be talking about political matters and legal matters. And by the way, I hope you caught our talk with him uh, a few weeks ago where we discussed his book, Crossing Hoffa, a remarkable story of his father's interactions with the famous labor leader. Next week's program, number 1,000, we're hoping to bring something very special to you, but I'm not going to telegraph it. Or, <laughs> it's a work in progress. Uh, we expect to have a, a very special and, and remarkable guest for show number 1,000. You need not worry about that, because if, if our plans fail on that, Mr. plans to do his entire stand-up act. Now, as I recall, last time you did your act, uh, someone from the audience shouted, uh, they want you outside. And you asked, uh, who? And what was the response? The people inside. That's what I thought. Now, owing to time constraints in in recent programs, we were able to slip in the following joke. So we're not going to let that happen again today. The meme being sent around asked, what's the difference between an alligator and a crocodile? And the response is, I believe the main difference is that one will see you later and the other will see you in a while. But I could be wrong. I'm not a zoologist. Mr. Merlin, you may want, to, may want to conserve that one for your act. Well, I want to thank you, Mr. Merlin, for coming up with that very obscure piece of music from many years back, which is very appropriate for the following item. According to the Wall Street Journal, Harley-Davidson is struggling to recover its motorcycles. The iconic maker said its credit loss rate was up significantly in the first quarter because it can't find enough agents to repossess bikes from buyers who fall behind on their payments. Turns out agents are paid an average of $350 for a repossession, a figure which hasn't changed in decades, and they get nothing if they don't succeed. Now, motorcycles are usually kept in a garage, meaning a repo man must leave his truck, knock on the debtor's door, and ask for the bike's return. Riders are often unwilling to hand over their wheels. Which prompted Vaughn Clemens, the head of the American Recovery Association, to ask, Who wants to back up in a driveway and get shot at? To which he added, You can make the same money doing something else. Harley, baby, son of a bitch. James Dean wrote his Harley. Right? Anyway, moving right along, I, I guess we just had a Kentucky Derby, didn't we, Mr. McMillan? I believe so. Yeah. Well, I don't know much about it. I'm not even sure who won, but uh, this did inspire a couple of Derby-related news items, which did attract my attention. One article that appeared was about Secretariat, which 50 years ago won the Derby, and then also the Belmont and the Preakness giving it you know, the Triple Crown. I guess this triple crown phenomenon doesn't happen very often. I think it's only happened four times since uh, Secretariat accomplished the feat back in 1973. But what amazed me in reading about it was the fact that Secretariat set the course record in all three races 50 years ago, which itself is astounding. But even more astounding is the fact that 50 years on, those are still the course records for all three races. So even though we don't follow the sport, we here at Radio Parallax take our hats off to the immortal secretariat. And Seabiscuit. Yes, thank you for that reminder, Mr. Melinda. For those of you who never heard our interview with jockey Frank Sorcy, a man who actually had ridden the legendary horse Seabiscuit, we would refer you to our archives at radioparallax.com. Frank was a fun one. S-O-R-C-I. Rhymes with horsey. Yes, indeed. Now the other Kentucky Derby story that attracted our attention was the fact that in 1968, the Derby winner lost its crown for a drug that apparently most horses now take. The story is that back in 1968, Dancer's Image won the Derby and held the crown for three days until Churchill Downs disqualified him for drugs. This took place under what was then called a zero tolerance policy. We refer to such policies on this program in the past. We like to refer to them as zero brains policy. I can't confirm the fact that, you know, people have lost their yachts because drug agents found a single marijuana seat aboard, but I'm willing to believe it could happen and probably did. I'm going to miss that yacht. (laughs) Right. The story is back in 1968 uh, that it was standard to test the winning horse along with a randomly selected horse for drugs. A chemist did this, took the urine of the winner and a randomly selected also ran and was mostly looking for performance-enhancing drugs like heroin and cocaine. I guess heroin is a stimulant in horses, although it acts like a depressant in humans, and the drugs have become a problem in horse racing during the 1930s now applying this zero tolerance policy for prohibited medications meant that even the smallest trace of a drug and by that we mean any prohibited medication in a horse's system was grounds for disqualification it didn't matter how much it was there just had to be a trace one of the drugs in the prohibited medications was phenylbutazone often referred to as bute which acts as an antihistamine and pain reliever in horses it's similar to how aspirin works in humans Is not a steroid or a stimulant, which might affect a horse's performance, and many horses used it during training for the derby. Still, they weren't supposed to have any left in their system by the time they raced, and the chemist found the dancer's image did. It later came out that a veterinarian had given dancer's image some phenylbutazone about a week before the race. Most horses would have gotten the drug out of their systems by then, but it seems dancer's image body didn't process it quickly enough. And because of the zero-tolerance policy... Racetrack chemists only tested for the presence of it, not the amount. So it didn't matter whether it had a lot or just a trace. He was going to be disqualified, and he was. So the officials announced the new winner was forward pass, which came in second. The owner, a man named Peter Fuller, sued over the decision, and the court cases dragged on for nearly five years, as they sadly often do, while the first place money sat in an escrow account. Now it turned out that owner Fuller had a lot of money, which I think is pretty much something you take for granted if you're running racehorses. He had a lot of dough, and he challenged the claim that the test was appropriate. He said the tests were not appropriate, and the racing chemist was incompetent to boot. A state judge actually ruled in Fuller's favor, but the victory was short-lived because the Kentucky State Racing Commission appealed and won. Fuller gave up the legal battle in 1973, and Churchill Downs was finally able to award the prize money and the interest it gained in escrow to, to Calumet Farm, which owned Forward Pass. But Here's where the story gets weird. The Kentucky State Racing Commission then did something rather surprising. Less than a year after winning the lawsuit about its ability to disqualify a horse for taking phenylbutazone, the commission decided that well, they're going to approve the same drug for use during the Kentucky Derby. It's said that nobody's sure why the commission made that decision, but it may have had something to do with the debate around Fuller's lawsuit and whether phenylbutazone really needed to be on the list of prohibited medications along with the harder drugs. There's a question about whether it's performance enhancing. If a horse is sore, said an expert, and gets a dose of boot a few hours before the race, then he's not going to be feeling bad and and probably will run better. So in that context, it's Sort of performance enhancing, maybe. Because the disqualification of dancers' image appeared to be so technical, and radio prowlers would say so brainless, uh, not to mention the fact that phenylbutazone became acceptable at derby races just six years later, Peter Fuller suspected there was something more going on. After Martin Luther King's assassination a month before the 1968 Kentucky Derby, Fuller had donated the prize money from a previous race to Coretta Scott King, King's widow. After Dancer's image was disqualified, Fuller wondered if somebody unhappy with his support of the civil rights movement had sabotaged his victory. Fuller, a white man from New England, had been viciously criticized before the race for his full-throated support of civil rights. Fuller had known King when he was alive and had protested against housing discrimination in Louisville during the 1967 Kentucky Derby. And the weeks before the 68 Derby, people sent him angry letters and death threats, and someone set one of his stables in New Hampshire on fire. Which raises the question, could someone have slipped the horse some extra phenylbutazone before the race? Well, possibly, but it's just as likely the horse just still had some in his system from the week before. In any case, the drug is no longer against the rules, and most Kentucky Derby horses, in fact, most American racehorses in general, likely have it in their system when they line up at the starting gate. So there it is. Zero tolerance policy, zero brains policy. Anyway, discussion of support of the late, great Martin Luther King uh, leads us to, sadly, the obituary for Harry Belafonte, who recently passed away. I think we need to say a few words about his life. Harry Belafonte was an American legend. He was an electrifying performer, He was the first black Emmy Award winner, the first black man to win a Tony Award, and the first person of any race to have a record sell more than one million copies, which I find to be quite a surprise. Belafonte also made history beyond the entertainment world. He was a major bankroller of his personal friend, Martin Luther King Jr., and a key liaison between black activists and Hollywood. He helped the civil rights movement gain wider public acceptance. The cause of justice animated nearly everything he did. Even the Deo, Banana Boat song, the playful Calypso tune that became his calling card, had a political message. It spoke about the struggles of the people who are underpaid and who are victims of colonialism, he said in 2011. It talked about our aspirations for a better way of life. He was born Harold George Belafonte Jr. in Harlem. Into a childhood rife with hardship and sorrow, said Time magazine. His father was from Martinique and his mother from Jamaica. They were both mixed race. They were both also undocumented immigrants who constantly changed jobs, also apartments, and even their names to avoid authorities. Harry was parked with relatives in Jamaica from age 9 to 13. Suffering from undiagnosed dyslexia, he dropped out of high school and joined the Navy at 17, hoping for adventure and glory, was instead relegated to grunt work, loading ammunition in the ships in New Jersey. After his service, he worked as a janitor in a New York City building, where in 1945 a tenant gave him a ticket to a play at the American Negro Theater. That experience proved life changing. He joined the troupe, which included Sidney Portier, who had become a lifelong friend, and he enrolled in drama classes. And no, I did not realize that Belafonte was an actor before he became a famous singer, but In 1954, he appeared in Carmen Jones with Dorothy Dandridge, an all-black update of the opera Carmen. Handsome and charismatic, Belafonte was a a near-instant stage matinee idol. He certainly got on the national radar with his traditional tunes such as Deo and Matilda, and he single-handedly spawned a Calypso craze. His third album, 1956's Calypso, spent a staggering 31 weeks atop the charts. By 1959, Harry Belafonte had a TV variety show, Tonight with Belafonte, but he walked away from it after CBS tried to modify the show following Southern complaints about the integrated cast. Frustrated, Belafonte used his celebrity to turn a spotlight on injustice. He co-organized the 1963 March on Washington, where King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech, and he invited Hollywood luminaries such as Marlon Brando, Rita Moreno, and Paul Newman to come, giving them a prominent place directly in the path of TV cameras. That same year, he raised about $50,000 to bail King and other activists out of a jail in Birmingham, Alabama, and the next year joined Portier to personally deliver $70,000 to protesters in Mississippi, where the pair narrowly escaped a Ku Klux Klan ambush. His visibility made him a target for surveillance. He later found out that his manager and therapist were both FBI informants. After King's 1968 assassination, Belafonte became a roving humanitarian without a portfolio. He was a driving force behind the star-studded 1985 single, We Are the World. And after a long-time campaign against apartheid in South Africa, he helped organize Nelson Mandela's first visit to the U.S. in 1990. USA Today noted that Belafonte was forever uncompromising in his desire to change America and the world. In a 2006 meeting with Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez, he called George W. Bush the greatest terrorist in the world. He later said Barack Obama didn't care enough about poor people, and he compared Donald Trump to Adolf Hitler. The resulting controversies didn't faze him. I've always looked at the world and thought, what can I do next? How can we fix it? He said in a 2011 documentary. And that's still how I look at the world, because there is so much to be done. So true, Mr. Belafonte, and we salute you for all that you did. And something else I think we need to salute is the good people at PBS. Over the years, PBS has done a great deal to raise television up from its status as a vast wasteland, and I cannot resist mentioning the passing of the man who coined that phrase, Newton Minow. He was the FCC chairman under John F. Kennedy. He took took a a look at the state of television at that time and said, (laughs) well, it's a vast wasteland. He was, of course, correct. But my understanding is that James Aubrey, who then headed CBS, dismissed Minow's criticism and said, look, he's not watching anyway. The problem with television is not that it's too lowbrow, it's that it's too highbrow. So Aubrey set out to change the programming, and as a result, gave us the Beverly Hillbillies, Gomer Pyle USMC, Petticoat Junction, Green Acres, which, despite being near brain dead programming, nevertheless became the most popular shows on television and made CBS rich. And even worse, when they were developing the program Gilligan's Island. They decided to name the boat after the FCC chairman, which is why it was called the Minnow. Ouch! But I digress. PBS, uh, you know, is the opposite of all of that. I gotta say, I'm I'm just, I'm knocked out by a a current series which is available on YouTube at PBS.org called Eons. It is a fantastic series of very short documentaries running sometimes 10 minutes, maybe 20 at the most, looking at Paleontology, geology, plate tectonics, evolution, various forms of life. They're all spectacularly well done. And frankly, I confess to having binged watched them over the past week or so, and I plan to continue doing so until I've seen every damn one of them. I believe, dear listener, if you check them out, you too will like them. There's a lot to like. I would add that I have learned a lot of things. I knew a little about, or in some cases, knew nothing about. And something else, which I knew nothing about, which but which frankly blows my mind, turned up in New Scientist magazine on its May 6th issue about a strange alga that has no less than seven genomes inside of it. I think I should point out, in keeping with the Eons series on PBS, you and I have very complicated genetic makeups. More of our DNA was donated from viruses we've encountered over the millennia, then is devoted to being active genes. Yes, I know that seems hard to believe, but uh, we've now learned that most of what was called, even as late as when I was in medical school, junk DNA is nothing of the sort. I hope in some future installment of this program, we'll take a look back at Charles Darwin and how really at this point in time, it could scarcely be clear that natural selection is not the only driver of evolution. I'm not saying Darwin was wrong, I'm just saying he didn't have the whole picture, which should be pretty evident to everyone since we didn't even know about genes back when Charles was sailing the world and writing about what he found. But the fact is, sometime billions of years ago, there was probably an, an algae and a bacterium merged and instead of the algae digesting the bacterium it decided to keep it around and make use of it. All of us still carry the remnants of that union within us. The the powerhouses that provide the energy to run all of our cells, which are called mitochondria, have their own genes, which is pretty amazing if you think about it. Oh, and the same thing is true with the plant world. The chloroplast, which makes plants green and provide them with the energy and provide all of us with the energy that we we use ultimately. Well, chloroplasts have DNA also. It's a complicated picture and I don't have time to sort it out, but it serves as a prelude to this story in New Scientist about this single-celled algae or alga with all these different genomes inside of it. How did this happen? Are, are we Are we redoing what happened on Earth billions of years ago, creating a new hybrid organism? Well, you have to wonder. The story here is that this alga called Cryptomonad was collected by a naturalist, a man named Ernst George Pringheim, sometime before 1970. It became part of a collection at the University of Gutenberg in Germany. In 1988, a microscope study revealed bacteria within the algal cells and also viruses within some of the bacteria. And I guess they grew this, uh, this algae and they've been growing this algae ever since, keeping it alive and- This prompted someone in 1988 to take a look at these specimens. That's when the microscopes revealed uh, all, all these things going on within a cell. Modern technology has been applied to it. They took the DNA inside the cells and identified the viruses and the bacteria. Notes the article, it isn't that unusual for cells to host symbiotic bacteria. Complex cells are thought to have arisen about 3 billion years ago. When a bacterium started living inside another simple cell and formed a partnership a phenomenon known as endosymbiosis that bacteria evolved into the energy producing mitochondria found in almost complex cells as you were just so informed the article notes that the main genome of complex cells meaning you and me is in the cell nucleus but mitochondria retain their own small genome that means that most animal cells have two distinct genomes with up to several thousand copies of the mitochondrial genome per cell. Now, about a billion years ago, plants gained the ability to photosynthesize by acquiring cyanobacterium, which had been pulling the trick off for billions of years, and these evolved into the chloroplasts, which also retained part of their different genomes. So, if you look at a plant cell, it's got three different genomes within it. These Cryptomonad algae, however, aren't plant cells. They start out as free-swimming predatory cells and gain the ability to photosynthesize by engulfing a complex plant cell, a red alga, rather than cyanobacterium. The nucleus of this red alga has been retained in a shrunken form because it contains some genes essential for photosynthesis. So, all cryptomonads have four different genomes. The main genome in the nucleus, the remnant nucleus in the alga, the mitochondrion and the red algal chloroplast. But this Girton constraint has an additional three extra genomes, having required two more bacterial endosymbiontants. Now, I realize not all of you may agree with me when I say this, but that's amazing. I mean, it's so amazing, Mr. Millen just woke up. The punchline of this article, and I think this entire E.ON series that's on PBS, is that life is a lot more complicated than we knew. A lot of discoveries made in the last decade or two have really shown just how true that is. Anyway, in a final biologically related story, which I'm not quite sure what to make of, we have this. The Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which is a giant collection of plastic trash floating in the open ocean, has been found to be home to an entirely new ecosystem, noted the Atlantic Researchers have found that dozens of marine species that usually live by the coast, including, including sea anemones, Japanese oysters, shrimp-like amphipods, and mussels, are now thriving in the deep sea. They're treating this 600,000 square miles of junk as a kind of archipelago. On over two-thirds of the plastic objects that researchers examined, the interlopers were living side by side with creatures that normally inhabit the middle of the ocean, meaning they've created a whole new ecosystem. There was even a new food chain. The coastal sea anemones were eating sea snails, for example, and some of the animals were reproducing. This suggests that they're permanent residents of a plastic patchwork, not just passing through. Researchers have known that coastal species could travel on ships or floating debris, but it had been assumed that differences in temperature, salinity, and food sources meant they couldn't settle down in the ocean in the long term. But marine scientist Owen Fraser from the University of Otago, who was not involved in the study, said humans are creating new types of ecosystems that have potentially never been seen before. Yeah, and while that may be, I just want to point out, it's not okay for you to throw your plastic trash in the ocean. It's not your job to create a new ecosystem, okay? All right, as we look for a closer in our final 30 seconds here for this segment, uh, I'm gonna go to the Uncle John's bathroom reader, which tells us that the Bulgarian Train Drivers Union, KNSB, once complained to rail companies that tight schedules, and the fact that many trains lack bathrooms, forced the drivers to urinate out train windows while they drove. And you know, you gotta hand it to one of the railway companies' unique response to this complaint. They installed rotating seats for the drivers so they could pee out the window without having to leave the controls. Please don't try this in your personal vehicles. That train, Case gold, you watch your speed. Ahead, Let's take a short break, listen to Radio Parallax. Do stick around for Stephen J Harper. He's always good. And uh, oh yeah, I'm Douglas Everett. You sure? Yeah.